one striking result is that you can explain 100% of the difference in bids for men and women by the differences in ask. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Nina Roussy is a postdoctoral associate at MIT and will join MIT's economics department as an assistant professor in 2023. She's also the executive director of the Hub for Equal Representation at the LSE, where she spent the last academic year as an assistant professorial research fellow. She works on topics in labor, gender, and public economics, with a particular interest for the distributional effects of labor market policies. We discussed why women should ask for more if we want to reduce gender inequality in the tech industry. Thank you so much, Nina, for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here. Very excited to be here as well. In your research, you focus on the role of salary negotiation on the gender pay gap. And I first wanted to place your work in the context of what we know in general about the evolution of gender inequality. Why do you think focusing on negotiation matters today? If I were to take you through an entire history, we would be here for an hour. But in the sort of broad evolution of the pay gap, if we look back, say, in the 60s, the raw gender pay gap in the population was about 40%. And a lot of it, about half of it, could be explained solely by, for example, education, right? Now, sort of fast forward in the 90s, the raw gender pay gap in the population is about 20%. So it has, you know, close to halved. And some of it can be explained by education, but very little. A lot of it is still explained now by occupation. But once we've used, you know, all the observables we have in an administrative data set, we still have 8% that we can't explain. That is an 8% difference in pay between men and women that cannot be explained by the observables such as education, experience, occupation, right? This 8%, this residual pay gap is how we call it, has stagnated for the past 30 years. It was, you know, around 8 to 10% in the 90s. It is about 8 to 10% today. And a lot of the conversation that economists have had has been around trying to use differences in behavior between men and women to explain this residual gap. And one of the focus of these differences in behavior is negotiation behavior. So the key novelty, or one of the key novelties of your study is that you can focus on a specific population in an occupation where women have been traditionally underrepresented, so engineers, and you use a novel data set. So can you tell us more about it? To give a bit of, of context as to why this data set is particularly interesting, Usually, when we think about wage negotiation or wage setting, we only observe one side of the market. So usually, you know, in difficult studies, we're either going to observe the candidate side. So we're going to see, for example, that women have lower salary expectations than men. This has been shown in the literature now, you know, for quite a while. Or we're going to observe the firm side. So we're going to observe that women get lower salary offers than men do, right? But in most data sets, you only observe either the candidate side or the firm side. And this is where the data set that I'm going to describe to you now sort of builds a new bridge in that I get to observe both sides of the market 
in the same data set. So now that I've sort of exposed where the hole in the literature was, maybe I can tell you a bit more about the data set I'm looking at. So the company, which is called Hire.com, is an online recruitment platform for high-skilled tech workers. As you just mentioned, it's mostly software engineers. And as you mentioned as well, this is both a high-wage occupation, also an occupation where women are very underrepresented. It's about 20% female and, and you know, 80% male, some ratio that we know a lot about from our own field of economics, I guess. And so essentially the recruitment on the platform goes as follows. You're first going to post as a candidate resume, which is quite typical of a recruitment platform. It's going to contain things like your experience, your education. We kind of all know what a resume looks like. But what is different about this platform is that every candidate is going to post an ask salary. That's the answer to the question, what is the salary that you want to make in your next role? And every profile is going to have posted on it that salary. And then if a firm is interested in a candidate, they're going to reach out to this candidate and they're going to send this candidate what I call a bid salary, which is how much the firm would be willing to pay the candidate solely based on that candidate profile that is their resume and their ask salary. So the firm sees the ask salary of the candidate when they determine their bid. And then, you know, they go on an interview process, which I don't know much about. But what I do observe at the end, if there is a final offer, a hire, is the final salary at which this author goes out. And so here you see that compared to the usual data set, I'm going to be able to observe every step of the way, the ask salary of the candidate, the bid salary of the firm, and the sort of final agreement between the firm and the candidate for the salary at which they hired. So the first set of results is that you start by documenting that women ask for lower salaries on this platform. How big is the difference and how does it impact their final salary at the end? First, you know, the main observation is indeed that for candidates that have a similar resume, women ask for about 3% less than men. Now, some of your listeners might think 3% doesn't sound like much. Now, let me put this first in dollar numbers and then tell you a little bit about heterogeneities in this number. So 3% in a high-wage platform where the average salary is about $120,000, that actually represents close to $4,000 a year. So $4,000 a year for anybody, at least to me, is quite large and it increases with experience. So if we look at software engineers straight out of undergrad, there is actually no gender difference once we've controlled for resume characteristics between, well, no gender difference. If we go to a population that has 10 or more years of experience, that gap is actually close to 6%. And if you compile that with the fact that people with more than 10 years of experience have salaries that are, you know, much higher than the average salary on the platform, that compiles to, you know, close to $7,000 a year. One striking result is that you can explain 100% of the difference in bids for men and women by the differences in ask. In other words, once I control for the ask salary of candidates, there is no gender difference in the offers that individuals are getting. In contrast, if I just control for the resume characteristics of the candidates, but not their ask, I can only explain about 40% of the bid gap on the platform. So there's a series of other interesting results, like you talked about the role of experience that in some ways goes in the opposite direction as what we would expect. So how do you explain that experience is actually increasing the salary gap? 
I observed that there is very little gender difference in ask salaries at the onset of one's career and that it grows with experience. And one explanation that the reform seems to put forward is one of information gaps. And so here, you know, Coming straight out of undergrad, men and women ask for the same. The most likely reason for this is that it's quite transparent how much, say, a junior software engineer should be making straight out of undergrad. Whereas later on in the career, it's much harder to know where to put the cursor in how much to ask for. And this is where differences in, say, information networks between men and women in a profession that's very much male-dominated make it so that women ask for less. And so the reform here provides a leveling ground where everybody receives the same information about the median. So I wanted to ask you whether you can investigate whether it's more profitable for men compared to women to ask for higher salary, because that could be a potential explanation behind this gap. Right. So in fact, you know, ex ante, there are a lot of explanations you could have said as to why women are asking for less. And some of these explanations might be that this is the rational behavior for women. One story could be, well, women are anticipating discrimination. You know, they think firms are discriminatory and they lower their ask in order to increase their chances to get a job or to, you know, equate their chances to get a job compared to men. That's a potential story that ex ante would have been credible. Another story, which is, you know, potentially backed by the literature, is one where women have lower ask salaries because they're trying to target different jobs. You know, maybe I ask for a lower salary because I'm trying to get a more flexible schedule or maybe I'm trying to target a more socially conscious company. And so I'm asking for a lower salary as some kind of signaling for different types of jobs. Totally valid story. What I'm going to show you is that the experiment or the reform that happened on the platform helps me sort of weed out all of these potential stories and put forward a mechanism that I think is the most consistent with the evidence of that reform, which is an information channel. So maybe we can talk about that reform that you identify as a way to, in a very efficient way, to close this gap. So you investigate the solution. What is happening exactly in practice? So essentially, as I told you, I labeled the ask salary, the answer to the question, what base salary are you looking for in your next role? And every candidate is answering that question. Now, at the beginning of the platform, the candidates were answering that question in an empty text entry. And started in mid-2018, what happened is that Hire.com, the recruitment platform, started pre-filling this answer box to the question with the median salary on the platform. And it's not any median. It's the median that corresponds to your own location, experience, and job title. So it's somewhat tailored to your type of profile. And it was unexpected. It wasn't communicated to the candidates, neither to the firm. So it sort of happened abruptly on the platform. And so what I'm observing there is in the month following this reform that the ask gap between men and women essentially closed on the platform. And maybe in a very optimistic result is that the bid gap on the platform also closed. And I have suggestive evidence, although, you know, the 
sample size is much smaller, that the final offers difference between men and women also went to zero. So essentially this reform had the effect of getting women to ask for more and men for essentially the same as they were asking before. So one mechanism you put forward and that I found interesting is that for recruiters, someone who is asking for more is basically signaling quality. So this can be somehow counterintuitive in the context of labor economics. So could you tell us more about this? The motivation indeed was that I had some surprising results. Like one of those surprising results was that if you drew the relationship between the residual ask salary of candidates and the number of interview requests that they get, I'm not getting a downward sloping curve. I'm actually getting an inverse U shape. So there is an entire range where asking for more is associated with receiving more interview requests, not less. Another surprising result from the reform is that it doesn't seem like women paid any kind of cost at the extensive margin. What I mean by this is that as a result of the reform compared to men, women did not experience a decrease in the number of interview requests that they got or in the likelihood to get a final offer. And one way to sort of rationalize this bundle of evidence is the following. Firms are interpreting your ask salary as a signal of your quality. That is, everything else equal, a candidate asking for slightly more could be, I will say not is, could be, but that's the theory, labeled as better quality. And in fact, I was very excited to see that recently a paper by Amanda Egan, Laura G, and Bo Cargill showed this in a more experimental context where what they did is they did a kind of correspondence study where they sent out resumes that were essentially the same, but disclosed the different salary history. And they sent those out to recruiters and they asked the recruiters to assess the quality of those resumes and how much they would offer as a salary for these resumes. And they showed that the people with a higher salary history, everything else equal, were getting better quality ratings from the recruiters and higher salary offers. So it's a kind of rigorous proof of this idea that I had around the ask salary as a signal of quality. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their work. So I wanted to ask you to give us the intuition behind the selection exercise on unobserved and observed variables that you use to estimate the gender gap in your study. Yes. Okay. Let's give this a try. So essentially, you know, the, the broad problem that this method is trying to solve is to assess how problematic omitted variable bias is for the validity of our estimates. So, you know, in some cases, it's possible to argue that a control or set of controls together fully capture a, a particular omitted variable. And so I don't know if your listeners are also familiar with omitted variable bias, but, you know, one example would be there are differences in earnings. One thing that we can observe is education, but one thing we don't directly observe is ability. And so we're trying to proxy ability with education and maybe other controls, but it remains that we have this omitted variable, which is ability to explain the gap. So, you know, sometimes it's possible to fully proxy with a set of variables the omitted variable bias. In many cases, the observed controls are an incomplete proxy for the true omitted variable. And so the method that's proposed by Altonji and co-authors essentially helps evaluate the robustness of results under the assumption that the relationship between treatment and unobservable can be recovered from the relationship between treatment and observables. 
And in particular, what the test that I do in my paper is that they provide a test statistics which is valid under the null of zero treatment effect for how important the unobservables would have to be related to the observables to eliminate the observable effects. So we have seen with your results that simple institutional design choices can affect the gender pay gap, such as how people are just referring their preferred salaries for their future jobs. And we know that in other contexts and in other studies in the lab, women are seen as penalized for asking for more. So I wanted to have your thoughts and your perspective on this. And also wanted to ask you about what should we make of your results in the context of labor shortages that are observed in many countries these days? This paper sort of contributes to a body of literature that has been trying to understand under what conditions or under what circumstances should women ask for more. And, you know, there is, for example, a recent paper by Christian Exley and co-author that shows that women can experience backlash when negotiating in person with a recruiter. So I think what's important to take away from this body of research is that there is no one size fits all kind of solution for this conversation and that we need to think about the specific context in which negotiation takes place. In the case of Hired.com, this is a statement of the ask salary that's not in person, right? It's on my profile. It's not something that I have to directly negotiate with the employer. The other thing is the context of, you know, diversity push in tech. You know, if you think about the late sort of 2010s, this is when a lot of firms in my sample, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, were having a huge push for diversity. So they are probably more open to women negotiating with them because of the labor shortages, specifically gendered in that case, of you know female software engineers. And the other thing is, I think we should also distinguish between the negotiation margin at the recruitment phase, where the firm is also trying to attract the candidate, from on-the-job negotiation, where it's been shown as well that women have been sort of receiving some pushback. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation for our listeners of a book, a movie, or anything that inspires you and you would like to share. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, this is a show on inequality, so I can't leave it without saying that you know the, one of the reasons I, or the reason I think I decided to do a PhD is Thomas Piketty, you know, <laughs> Capital in the 21st Century book, but this is not very original. So I thought maybe I could share the recommendation of 13th which is a documentary that's on Netflix. I think it's a 2016 or, or something around that. It's by Ava Duverny and it essentially gathers a kind of bundle of testimonies from, say, scholars, activists, politicians on the criminalization of African-Americans and the U.S. prison boom. And so it really sort of got me to understand, especially coming from the French context, you know, it's quite different, got me to understand how the U.S. law system had a long sort of lasting impact on mass incarceration and how it differentially affected communities of color. Thank you so much, Nina, for sharing this. And thank you very much for this conversation. Awesome. Thanks a lot. This was Inequality Talks a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Infanter in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoit for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.